Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. What a powerful name it is, the name of Jesus. We are gathered back together after an incredible week uh, of things going on. We've seen opportunities. We've begun to launch new uh, um, um, outreaches um, already. We're looking at seeing what we can do for our teachers in this community and our school system in light of all the little children going back. And on top of that, we're launching this new sermon series. And I'm excited that we're going to be in the book of James. And the idea that the, the title of this series is James Doing Life. So James tells us how to do life, and then in our small groups, if you're not in a small group, you can get in an a, a in-person small group, or you can get in a virtual small group, or you can get in a small group that's a meld of both. But then that's going to be doing life together. How do we do life together according to what James says? And we're kind of looking at this right here. Let me just give you a little insight, if I might, real quick. And that is that most theologians understand that this book is written by James, the stepbrother or the half-brother of Jesus. This is not James, the brother of John. This is not the sons of thunder who wrote this book. This book is written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, and you see that James later on will end up being the leader of the church in the book of Acts, um, especially in 15, and, and you'll see that uh, he, uh, he stood up and he said, wait a minute, I understand some of this stuff that's going on here. Um, I don't know about you, but uh, I often wondered, it's like, wow, what would it be like to introduce your little brother or your, excuse me, your big brother and say, well, this is my brother Jesus, and here Jesus called, uh, son of God, son of God. So like 12 years old, you're introducing your brother who's like, you know, 13 years old, and you say, this is my brother Jesus, and he says, uh, son of God, Jesus, son of God. I want the whole title. And, and somewhere in there, James has to come to grips with, does he believe that that's the Son of God or it's his brother? Think about your brother if you have a brother for just a second. Could you believe on any planet at all that he's the Son of God? It's like, well, not after everything we've been through, but put yourself at 12 or 13 years of age and you're introducing your brother. Could you say, hey, this is my brother, Steve, Son of God, you know, the Messiah, and everybody would look at you like, what? And it's like, come on now, hold on a second. Well, this is the picture. 60, uh, 60 to 69 AD, this book is written, so 30 to 35 years after Jesus has ascended into heaven. And then suddenly he is in a place where we recognize that he actually does believe that this is the Son of God, that his brother is in fact the Son of God. Now, if I could convince my brother that I was the Son of God, my brother would say, if he can convince me he's the Son of God, he's the Son of God. And so this is a picture of James saying, listen, he convinced me. If you don't believe me, look at this in, uh, in Mark chapter 3, in verse 20. This is James's early thoughts on his own brother. And by early thoughts, I mean old enough. So if Jesus is in the 30s, James is, James is easily in his mid to late 20s, okay? We don't know where he is in the birth order and things like that. But there's no reason to think that if Jesus is 33 and launching his ministry, that James is not somewhere in his late 20s. And uh, <clears throat> Jesus has just appointed the 12 apostles, okay? And then the scripture will say that then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. So there's Jesus and he's out there. He's picked 12 guys. They're going to do ministry. And, and what a wonderful opportunity. He takes his staff out to dinner. Huh? He takes his staff down to Gillum's and they're going to have a little bit to eat. What about that? And while they're there, it gets so crowded inside that they can't do anything. It gets ridiculous. And I love this next verse. This is what Jesus' family actually thought of him when he was 33 years old. 
When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he's out of his ever-loving mind. Ever-loving is added. Uh, I don't believe it's actually there in the Greek, um, but it might be in the Hebrew. You can check me on that. But it is very, very clear that they showed up, and here he is. He's got 12 apostles now that are going to follow him around, and they're going to tell everybody that he's a son of God. He's in a house having a meal. He's having mooching off of whoever who's sporting him right there. And the, the crowd is so big that his mom and his brothers decide they better come and take control of him because he's out of his ever-loving mind. That's what they thought of him at this point in his career right here. And we're going to be looking at this idea, okay? Um, so they came to get him. That's the James. And then somewhere we recognize that James comes to believe that Jesus is in fact the Christ, the Son of God, eventually surrenders his life, and again, we don't know it at what point, but surrenders his life to him as his Lord and Savior, not just his older brother that wanted to boss him around, but surrenders to him as his Lord and Savior, and then becomes a leader in the church. And we want to look at James's um, uh, letter to those of us that are here, but specifically to the Jews back in the day. You'll see that he opens it up by saying, hey, this letter is going to the 12 tribes that are scattered. Um, we also understand it to believe uh, Christian people of the 12 tribes that are scattered. And so we're looking at this passage this morning in the book of James, and we're going to begin to launch into this. And this is I don't know about you, but you write a letter to somebody, you, you, you form and uh, formulate an email, and you say, hey, uh, this is Joe, just want to touch base with you. He doesn't do that. He says, hey, James, okay, brother of Jesus, I'm writing this to you all, pay attention. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. What an opening. What a way to say hi to people. Count it all joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and lack, uh, com nah, mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not believe that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, because he will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, rich men will fade away even when he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When, he, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits from all that he created. And so we have this picture, and we have this, um, this uh, insight from James, and James is basically saying, I want to talk to you about trials. I want to talk to you about the things that test you. I want to talk to you about tribulations. And, and I do, in fact, want to talk to you about that just a little bit, because I wonder, what do you think is the good life? What do you think is the good life? 
If, if we say in America that we want to grab our piece of the pie or we want to, we want to have the good life, so we want to do that. I, I don't know about you, but somewhere in my life, uh, in my thought process, is this idea this, okay, you, you can go out there and you can earn it and you can be whatever you want. We tell our kids that, right? You can be whatever you want. You can go out there and you have the capacity to make that happen. And we got examples down through history, history of people that shouldn't have been able to do magnificent things actually doing magnificent things. And we give those to our children. But what's the good life? What is it? What is it that they're aspiring to? A 10,000 square foot home, 80 foot, you know, yacht sitting on the water, more money than Bill Gates. Uh, I mean, what's, what's the good life in, in your imagination? Is it health? Is it, is, it, is it family around you? Is it managing your, your, your life uh, and, and a career that you love? Is, is that the good life for you? Because so many people that come into my office, uh, my office often think that a good life is a life that doesn't have problems, and they often will say it this way, when, when does things get easier? When do things get better? When do things um, smooth on out? When do, and listen, I, I think that one of the things we've got to grab a hold of is that James says, count it all joy when you face these trials and temptations, because they're always going to be there. There is no life without hurdles. You know what a hurdle is? I don't know about you, but in high school, um, I, I was six foot two, you know, about 100 pounds, um, and um, we would go out there for gym, and we would run on the track in the lanes, and you can see a hurdle coming, right? You can see a difficulty coming. You can't just run around the track a quarter of a mile. You have to jump over those things, and, and for whatever reason, you know, I've got a, a, a 35, 35 and a half inch inseam, and I should be able to just like sail right over them. So I had all the gangliness and all of the height to do it, but I had none of the confidence. All right. Every time I saw a hurdle, I thought, it's going to kill me. It is going to kill me. You know what's going to happen? I'm going to jump over this hurdle. I'm going to catch it with my knee. I'm going to catch it with my toe. I'm going to knock the hurdle down. I'm going to fall on my face. Everybody in gym class is going to see me, and the, 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 the end is going to be worse off than the beginning. Right? That, that was my whole take on hurdles. The truth of the matter is, we all have hurdles in our life. We all have difficulties in our life. Now, they are varying degree of hurdles, but there is no life without trials and temptations. But all temptations aren't the same. What about when you find yourself with half the, dirty, the laundry in the house is dirty and spread out everywhere, the other half is needing folded, it's been cleaned. The kids need to go to a sports practice and on the way somebody is touching someone. You know how that is in the car, right? You know, he's touching me! It's like, what, what is the big deal about somebody touching you in the car? What, what is that that makes me want to pull the car over and just wail on the backside of whoever said it? Okay? So he touched you. So she touched you. Get over it. You, if you touch him again, what do we say? I'm going to break your fingers. Right? I promise I will come back there and I will break your... It's just like, what, what about that? So the laundry, half of it's dirty, half of it's everywhere. We've got to get to sports practice. Somebody's touching somebody. The dog has thrown up on your way out the door. The baby clearly needs a diaper. Everybody in the car is grossing out. And finally you get there and somebody forgot their mask and you can't go in. Welcome to 2020. Just keeping it relevant. How many people have I seen running toward the restaurant and then all of a sudden they hook a Yui? You know what that means, right? Turn around and go back to the car. We've all done it because we forgot our mask that's hanging on the rearview mirror or the shifter, right? That's where yours is right now. I've got three of them on one shifter. Amen. Right there in the back, okay? I've got one in each car at least, thanks to Teresa Mayer. She loves me. I've got one mask in each vehicle so I don't have to forget it. 
all right? But we do that, and we think, man, can this day get any worse? Are you kidding me? All right? You arrive w- uh, at work late. You're late. You're, you're late because you stopped to help somebody on the side of the road, and you thought you actually had enough time because you're one of those people that believes that 15 minutes early is on time. And so you've got a buffer. You stopped to help them, but as soon as you got them helped, you realized they needed a meal. So you decided to take them and get them a little breakfast, drop them off wherever it was, and now you're absolutely running behind. If that's not bad enough, you end up with a flat tire. When you get to work, you realize that all the work that you prioritized yesterday and actually got done and felt uh, good about had nothing to do with what you need to do today, and it could have been put off because now what you needed to get done wasn't done, and you're behind the power curve. You are behind the ball. Wow, what about that? And if that's not bad enough, and if that's not bad enough, you find out while you're sitting there that the job that you wanted, they're going to go outside the company to hire to bring somebody in. And so you're not going to get the promotion or the raise. Wow. Wow, Lord, what happened? What happened? These are all real scenarios, basically. Okay? People that we interact with on a regular basis. The cancer was in remission until your checkup today. Now it's back. Now what, Lord? Where do we turn? What do we do? What's the answer, God? We prayed, we give faithfully, we get involved as much as we can. There's too much life to be lived for this to be the end of my life now. Why me? Trials come in all sorts of shapes and all sizes. And they're still legitimate. You know, there's always that person that wants you to feel good and says, well, at least not. No, stop right there. That, that's not really relevant to my present situation. Don't compare it to somebody else. What you're going through right now is for real, and it's there. You know, the disciples, we'd like to believe that once we surrender our life to Jesus, that suddenly things will pop up, sunshine and roses. We'll all be singing, you know, Rock Candy Mountain, and it'll all be wonderful. Life is all going to be pie in the sky. God will solve all my problems, put me in right relationships, finance me, whatever it is he's called me to do. But it just doesn't happen. We still have to live a very real life. And when we look at the disciples, the apostles, the 12, 13 really, um, when it's all said and done, 14 if I include Paul, Peter was crucified upside down. That was his trial. He didn't want to be crucified right side up because Jesus was, so he got crucified on a crucifix upside down. Andrew, his brother, was crucified upside down but on a cross like this because he didn't deem it worthy to be crucified right side up or on a cross. James, the brother of John, was executed with a sword in Acts chapter 12. That's how we know this book wasn't written by him. See? John died in banishment on the Isle of Patmos after it was understood they attempted to boil him in oil, but it didn't work. So we don't know what his skin looked like or what he looked like, other than the fact that that legend has it or history has it that they tried to boil him in oil, and when that didn't work, they they, uh, banished him to Patmos. Philip was crucified upside down. Bartholomew was cruelly beaten and then crucified. Thomas was speared to death. Matthew was slain with a halberd in Ethiopia. James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned in Jerusalem. Jude and Simon both were hacked to death in Syria. Judas Iscariot, of course, hung himself out of guilt. Matthias, the guy that replaced him, died in Jerusalem of old age, and Paul was martyred in Rome by Nero when he was beheaded. Wow. Trials and temptations. That Paul guy goes to Rome and gets beheaded, and he's the one 
that uh, will encourage us to be faithful and to be there, and he will examine his own life, and he will share with us the trials that he faced on a regular basis. basis. Look at what Paul says in first, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. If anyone dares to boast about, and I'm speaking like a fool. Can you, can you see Paul saying this? If anybody wants to boast about it, oh man, I am talking like a fool now. I also dare to boast about, okay? What he's saying is, there's these other 11 disciples, 12 with Messiah, and if they want to boast and say that they're some kind of disciples, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm a fool for doing it, but I'm going to boast to you right now the evidence that I am also, you know, one of these super apostles. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. It actually says that in the Bible, okay? I am more. I have, look at this. I have worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely and been exposed to death again and again. Here it is. Five times I received the Jews from the Jews, 40 lashes minus one. Jesus was beaten 39 times with a lash, impregnated, it's understood, with uh, shards of pottery and lead. Okay? Now we don't know about Paul, but we know this. He was beaten five times the same way that Jesus was. We just don't know if there was pottery or lead in it. But he says, I was beaten five times with that 39 lashes. He said, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in dangers from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in dangers from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger in the sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. And I have known hunger and thirst and often gone without food. I've been cold and naked, and I love this. And if that's not enough, besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for the churches. I never would have listed that with being beaten five times with 39 lashes. I was beaten with 39 lashes. No, no, I'll tell you one that's worse. I lay my head on my pillow every night worried about you all. That's what he's saying. I'm worried about you all. And it's like, wow. This is his resume of what it means to be in the trial, in the fire, to be tempted to leave uh, the mission of the Christ. But trials don't always have to mean martyrdom, and trials don't always have to be monumental, but trials also don't always have to count for nothing. They can, in fact, count for something. We just have to understand there is no life without trials. We wake up and there's big trials and little trials and medium trials and we're going to have to face them. And Paul was a guy that said something about how he daily faces trials. And, and I want you to see this and I want to challenge you in this and I want you to feel free to come back to me and say, I did a research and I found out that this is true, okay? And that I might be wrong on something. Not that I'm not ever, I, I can be wrong. But, but look at what Paul says. He's, he's writing to Ephesus. And he says, he's in prison. Remember he said he was in prison over and over and over again? That was one of his trials. Look what, when he's in, in prison and he feels like he's being uh, tempted or tried or under the pressure or he just doesn't understand why he's being persecuted, he says, and pray in the Spirit on all kinds of occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. He's kind of getting to, hey, would you pray for me? Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. And also pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. 
You see where Paul is when he's in the middle of a trial? When you're in the middle of a trial, when you're in the middle of a testing time in your life, when things get difficult, when you've been fired, when you've lost your job, when, when you've got a, a financial or economic crisis going on, when somebody has walked away from you and said, I don't want to be married to you anymore, when, when you've lost somebody to death, when the doctor comes in and sets down and uses the cancer word, in all of those times, what is our reaction? Our reaction is a normal human reaction, right? Pray to God that he gets me out of this. That's, that's our normal reaction. I have noticed in all the years that I've been preaching that I can't find a time where Paul says, I'm in prison. Could you get me a good lawyer? Because the one I've got's not working. He never says, get everybody together and pray that I get out of here because it's not my fault I'm in here. He never says, I didn't do anything and I don't deserve this. God knows better. He doesn't, you know, go off like Job's friends and say, you know, God, you better just get me out of here because I'm a good one. Instead, he says, while I'm here, since I'm here anyway, could you guys pray, get together and pray that I'm more bold? Being bold got him in prison. Pray that while I'm in prison, I'm more bold. Pray that while I'm in the trial, I find more of God and not less of God. He never says, get me out of here. This is of the devil. Paul understands that Paul's mission, the mission of the kingdom of God that we are all called to, is wherever he is. So if he finds himself in jail, he doesn't say, God is testing me. But what he does say is, I believe in God's permissive will, and I believe in God's explicit will, and I don't know which one this might be, that people are being mean to me and God's allowing it. But the point of the matter is, if God's allowing it, then I want to make the most of it right now. How do I make the most of bringing the kingdom of God to whatever it is that I think is my biggest trial in my life right now? What, what is your biggest trial in your life right now? What do you think that is? Hold that in your hand for just a second, mentally. What is the biggest trial in your life right now? Did you ever stop and think that your prayer shouldn't be get me through it or get me out of it, but should rather be God show me what to do while I'm in it? Make me bold in the midst of this job that I hate. Make me bold in the midst of being lonely. Make me bold for the kingdom, moving the kingdom forward in the difficult situation. God, make me bold. In this trial, Paul is looking for God. In this trial, Paul is fulfilling the mission of the kingdom of God. In this trial, Paul is actually finding purpose for his whole life. Not that he wants to be beat, but that at some point he will understand that he has an opportunity to witness to the man beating him, to witness to the people that are watching him. When Paul found himself in prison at midnight in the black of the night, he decided to have a song fest in the book of Acts, and they started singing hymns and praise songs. It's amazing the example that Paul has given us. Trials, I believe, are the school of God. 
I don't always believe he puts us there on purpose. But I do believe that God makes the most of our lives when we're willing to say, Lord, what do you want me to do here in this place? So let me say this. Trials have a purpose in the hand of God. If you are going through a trial, put it in the hand of God. Because in the hand of God, if you will ask God, what can I do here? The kingdom of God can move forward. James said in this, this text, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of, of uh, many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and perseverance finishes its work so that you may be mature, complete, and lacking, not lacking anything. That doesn't mean big 10,000 square foot home, 10,000 square foot you know, uh, yacht on the water, all the money. No, no, no. It means that as a human being in a relationship to this world and God, you will have a complete understanding and not lack anything if we will stop and say God I'm putting the trial in your hand I'm just gonna be honest with you that's not my normal response I do not find joy in trials I don't like them but I have learned to, 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 to settle myself down and when I find myself in one and it's not always like somebody cut me off in traffic that's not a trial okay all right but when I find myself in a trial I back up and I say God what can I learn and what can I do what can I learn and what can I do? The year we planted this church, every major electronic um, appliance in our house broke in, in a week and a half period. The dryer went out, the refrigerator went out, the, the, the vacuum sweeper went out. It was stupid, and we finally stopped and said, whoa, 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 whoa. This is the enemy. God, what do you want us to learn? Not, God, get us out of here. No, no, no. Janice and I began to pray and say, God, what do you want us to learn? What can we do in the midst of all of this because we know the enemy's doing a thing. The scripture goes on to say, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. There is no life without trials. We will have trials all the days of our lives. We want to be the kind of people that can overcome trials by going through them and seeing where the work of the kingdom needs to take place in the midst of them. They will not last forever. They won't we can continue to move forward. Yes. That's two weeks in a row that the Lord has intervened and made a loud amen at a point that I feel like the Holy Spirit gave me. Paul, or excuse me, uh, Solomon writes to his son in the book of Proverbs chapter 27 and he says, the crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but people are tested by their praise. What is your answer when you're in the middle of a trial? Can you still praise God in the midst of it? That's what Solomon's saying. Can you offer God praise and thanksgiving in the midst of a trial? You know what it looks like when somebody is, is purifying gold, when it's being tried? It looks like this. You put the, the silver or the gold inside of, of, of the little smelting cup, and you put that cup inside of the fire, and then you heat that fire up, and you heat that fire up, and you heat that fire up until all of the impurities come to the top, and, and that, the gold doesn't like it. Not that the gold has a conscience, but the gold doesn't like it. You get the metaphor. The, the impurities rise to the top and you take a blade and you slide it across there and you scrape it and believe it or not, you refine that a couple of more times as well and it's lesser gold, but you still refine it because there is gold there. Or you take that cup with tongs and you pull it out of the fire, you begin to pour it and you put a blade there that lets the gold go by but the impurity stays in the cup. In either case, the gold is made pure through the refining fire, which is a metaphor over and over again in the scripture 
Scripture for the trials that you and I go through. And nobody likes when the trial gets hot. Nobody likes when the fire is heated up and heated up and heated up. But everybody wants the gold, and there's no gold without the fire. And we've got to understand that sometimes it is okay for us to say we've got to go through this. Like fire to gold and silver, so trials are precious to the cleansing in our own personal growth and formation. And trials don't always feel good. They aren't always fun, but like a lot of things, how you choose to go through it will determine. Do you only focus on get me out, get me out, or do you focus on when you're in the middle of the jail, like Paul, hey, pray that I can be bold and see the kingdom of God moving forward. Trials have a purpose in the hand of God. Second thing is that God will provide in the trial. Not before the trial, not after the trial. When we find ourselves in a trial, that's when we need to be looking for God and saying, God, how will you provide so that I can get through this? How will you provide so that I can do the things that I could do for the kingdom of God in the middle of the trial, in the middle of a broken life, in the middle of broken finances, in the middle of bankruptcy, in the middle of, of, of making bad decisions? God's not there to beat you and, and, and convict you and make you feel bad about it. God wants to help you through it, but we, we, we've got to go through it. And so we say, God, while I'm here, what can I learn? How can I grow? And how can I help other people? How can I do that in the midst of a situation that is, is an absolute trial to me? right now over and over and over again in the last couple of uh, uh, weeks I've been talking to pastors I've been talking about to people and this this God providing in the trial the example is still for me Shadrach Meshach and Abednego they face the fire they won't do what the culture says I shared this a little while ago and so they heat the fire up seven times more. We're going to make it so hot that it's going to be awful. And we're going to make it so hot that you're going to die. And, and they stood there and said, King Nebuchadnezzar, you can get that thing as hot as you want. We know that our God can save us. Whether he will or not is totally up to him. But we can tell you this right now, O oh great king, we will not bow down. You can throw us in the fire. And you know what? God was already waiting in the fire. This was a trial for the children of Israel who, if, if, you, don't, if you don't think this was a trial, they'd been kidnapped and hauled down to Babylon literally they had been kidnapped years before and hauled to Babylon and so they were away from home and so you, you and I would say that's a terrible trial I'm facing a trial I've been kidnapped I'm in a foreign country where they speak a foreign language and, and if that doesn't get bad enough now they're going to throw them in the fire and God was willing to meet them in the fire but in the fire and it's coming out the other side of the fire that God gave them favor and gave them privilege with King Nebuchadnezzar. Not on this side of the fire. And we don't have a record of them saying, listen, you people pray that we don't get thrown in there. They said, if that's a trial and we've got to face it, we know God can save us. And we know that he can. And if he will, that's great. But if he doesn't, we're going home because we won't bow down. And then they throw him in, and sure enough, there's, a, there's an example of Christ, a Christophany. God meets them. He's in the fire. The fourth one is like under the, the Son of God. And so he's in there, and they come out the other side without even so much as stenched clothing, and they get incredible jobs and incredible wealth. And I'm not saying that's, not why, we, that's why we do it. I'm just saying the favor of God rested upon them when they were faithful in the middle of the trial. And God will meet you in the trial. And the last thing I want to share with you tonight is, or this morning, is God is not the one tempting you. If you find yourself in a difficult situation, 
If, if you're wondering why your life is the way it is right now, why doesn't God intervene? Why doesn't God fix this? Why doesn't God do that? Why doesn't God do that? God is not the one that, that is putting you in the trial. God is the one trying to make the most of the trial for you. I believe wholeheartedly that trials are the college of the Lord. It's the university of the kingdom of heaven. When we find ourselves in trials, that's the time to say, what can I learn? <clears throat> What's going on in my life, God, that I can be a part of? The Scripture says in the book of James, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Sorry, I'm backing up, guys. But when you ask, you must, not, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take uh, pride in their humiliation. I, I don't want to go any farther. I want to camp on this idea real quick. God said that if you're facing a difficult time in a trial and you need wisdom, you should ask him. That's what he said. But too many of us, and I've been there before, I'm not there anymore, I want you to know, because I believe this revelation, too many of us are waiting for an, e for an email from God, a text from God, Okay, some sort of a sign from God that will say, make this decision this way. That's not what James says. James says if you're facing a particular trial, if you're going through a difficult situation, and you need to go to God and you need to ask Him for wisdom on how to do this. How do I be single? How do I handle my finances? How do I um, um, get a new career? How do I do it? God, this is hard. This is difficult. I need your wisdom. Okay, listen to me for a second. You were created to be you. And that scripture says, you're going to ask God for wisdom, and he's going to give it to you. When he gives it to you, you have to go do whatever it is that you're supposed to do, believing that God gave you wisdom. It's okay to get counsel from many people. The scripture will, will support that. There's great wisdom in, in many counselors, okay? But here's the deal. He's not going to give you a sign or an email or a text. He's going to give you the wisdom, and you have to believe that he's giving you the wisdom because he wants you to make the, the, the decision like you. That's why you're in that circumstance, so that you can make the decision like you. You're going to do it by crying out to God, and you're going to say, give me wisdom. Do I take this college class? Do I go here? Do I move to this? Do I do that? Do I accept this job? But God, I need your wisdom. And then you're going to spend some quiet time, and you're going to say, God, I'm making the decision, and this is what I'm going to do. And you have to believe, do not look back that God gave you the wisdom because he wanted you, not Joe Wood, he wanted you to be the one to make that decision. And in making that decision, you cried out for the wisdom of God. And as a Christian person, you know that you had a right to lay hold of the wisdom of God. And in laying hold of the wisdom of God, you made your decision. Don't look back. That's what he's saying. If you look back and start going, well, now you're just being blown about and you don't even think you, God answered your prayer for the wisdom of God. So how's he going to answer your prayer for the answer that you wanted the wisdom of God for? Move forward. Don't look back. Move forward. God is not the one tempting you. James 1.13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. Look at this. But each one is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. My desire entices me and tempts me. 
and then drags me away. Then that desire that's dragged me away conceives and gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is coming down from the Father, heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give birth, give us birth through the word of truth that there, we might be a first kind of first fruits from all that he created. I shared with the first service, I'll share it with you again. I have a friend, and I think I may have said this over the last little while, that raises ostriches. When I met him, an ostrich egg that was fertilized was worth $8,000. Just the egg. I have one that's been hollowed out, but just the egg is worth $8,000. If it hatches and the ostrich stands up, the ostrich is immediately worth $12,000. Back then. Now they're worth nothing. They're just ostriches. Back then, it was going to save the whole cattle industry. It was crazy, but we won't get into that. So I walked into his, his building, and he had a big monster incubator with like eight eggs per tray. And I'm doing the math. Eight times 8,000. One shelf, two shelf, three shelf, four shelf. Wow. So one incubator had eggs in it, and the little ostriches were trying to get out. It was awesome. An ostrich shell is thick. It is thick, man. It is thick. And the little guy was pecking and pecking and pecking and pecking and trying to get out, trying to get out, trying to get out. And I said, Daryl, I said, Daryl, listen, why don't you just open that thing up and crack that little egg and get the little guy out? He's suddenly worth another $4,000. He said, because if I don't let him suffer, he'll die. If I don't let him suffer, he'll never stand up. Because sometimes it's the suffering, it's the trial that we're going through that's strengthening us so that when we finally do break out of that trial, we can stand up and we've learned something and we can grow from it and we can be healthy. But man, when you're trying to get out of that egg and you're pecking like that little ostrich, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good at all. And there can be fear there. You can say, God, why do I have to go through this? God, what's happening to me? And God is saying, stay at it. Persevere. Keep breaking the egg. Don't quit now. Because when that egg cracks open, you're going to stand up. And it's going to be worth it. When we find ourselves in the midst of trials and even temptations, that's when we ask God to show us. Show us, God. Show us what we need to see in the middle of this. That's when we ask God to teach us. Teach me, God, what I can learn in the middle of this so that I can come out a better person. But more than anything, and I believe this, that's when we say, carry me, God, because this is hard. And listen to me. I worship and serve a God that wants to carry you. He doesn't just want to talk to you. There are times when we need to see what's going on. There's times when we need to understand, but then there's times when we need God to carry us. And maybe that's where you are right now. Show me, God. Help me understand, God. Teach me or carry me, God. We want to pray for you. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come. In the midst of this word, we all recognize that 
Lord, the scripture says we need Jesus. We need salvation. We need forgiveness for our sins. We need God to be right here next to us. But we also recognize that he is the lover of our soul, the author of our salvation, God. And that in the midst of all of this, Lord, you call us your own. Jesus isn't ashamed to call us brother, that you, but you make us children of the Most High God. In our trials, Lord, open up our eyes, open up our hearts. And more than anything, wrap your arms around us and carry us. Because we know in the midst of all of this, you will find a way when we're in the trial to work it for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. So we invite you now to put your arms around us in Jesus' holy name. Amen. As we go into this closing song right now, I just want to encourage you that there are people out there that would love to pray with you, that would love to pray for you. Looks like a couple of you have been going through something in the middle of this message, and I'm not going to call you out. I'm just saying you don't have to tell those people what you want prayer for. All you have to do is walk up and say, will you pray for me today? Kind of crazy. We talked about this last week to come to a spiritual God but not expect something spiritual to happen in our lives. That's just education. I want a relationship with God and I want everything that God's got for me so that I can do what God is asking of me before he calls me home. And I want to encourage you too. During this song, if you feel so moved, just walk right out there up to that table and just say, hey, could you pray for me? And only share as much as you're comfortable sharing but just know that you left being prayed over in the name of the Lord. Amen.